Well, good morning. It is indeed a, a blessing and a privilege to be with you this morning. Our text this morning comes from Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth, beginning in chapter 5, verse 11, reading through chapter, two, chapter 6, verse 2. Hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's known also to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you a cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it's for God. If we are in our right minds, it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one died for all and therefore all have died, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake, he made him who had no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is the living and enduring word of God. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that that which is familiar would not lead to contempt. We pray that you would give us a fresh insight into what you have done for us and how that should impact our lives. We thank you for the grace that you pour out abundantly and freely. And Father, we pray that you would be honored in the preaching of your word, in the hearing of your word, and then the fruit of it. And we offer ourselves anew to you this morning as living sacrifices to the glory of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. I want to read you a memo. To Jesus, the Son of God, Woodcrafter's Shop in Nazareth, from the Jordan Management Consultants in Jerusalem. Subject, Staff Aptitude Evaluation. Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have chosen for management positions in your new organization. All of them have taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but have also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist, and vocational aptitude consultant. It is, it is the staff opinion that most of your nominees lack the background education and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. 
they do not have the team concept, we would recommend that you continue your search for persons of experience in managerial ability and proven capability. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The brothers, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questionable attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel it's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, have definite radical leanings, and both have registered a high score on the manic depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He's a man of ability and resourcefulness. He meets people well, has a keen business mind, has contacts in high places. He's highly motivated, ambitious, and innovative. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. All the other profiles are self-explanatory. We wish you every success in your new venture. I'm sure many of you have looked at those 12 men that Jesus called to be his apostles. And it's very clear as we look at them as this humorous little article explains that they were not based on their merit, on their strengths, on who they were, but on the grace of God. We're focusing this morning particularly on chapter 6, verse 2, where we read, as God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. And we're going to be focusing this morning on just two words or phrases, three words, grace and in vain. What is grace and what does it mean to receive God's grace in vain? I'm sure that most of you, perhaps all of you, have this understanding of grace. We know the acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace being unmerited favor. Grace is blessing given when curse is deserved. Reward given when punishment is earned. It has nothing to do with what a person has earned or deserved. It flows from the giver purely on the basis of his desire to give without regard, or you might say even more, despite the unworthiness of the recipient. All of those of us who have embraced Jesus Christ, who have come to understand and believe the gospel, understand this. If we do not understand this, we're not Christians. Because at the foundation of what it means to be a Christian is to understand that the only way to come to God is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To be in vain is to be empty, to be meaningless, to have no impact. To make something vain is to remove its meaning, its purpose. So the question we need to ask ourselves this morning is, what difference does God's grace make in our lives on a day-to-day, moment-to-moment basis? Is it more than just pie in the sky when you die? Is it more than just somehow some ticket into heaven? If you're a follower of Christ, it, sh it is your foundation, your starting point, or at least, and it should be, or at least should be a foundational principle for everything else that we do in life, particularly with regards to our relationship with God and with each other. All the blessings we enjoy in this life are ours either 
by grace or in some sense earned or deserved. And too often we fall into that trap, that pattern of seeing ourselves as deserving, as being entitled to certain blessings, certain life. One of the things that's important to understand is foundational principle is the difference between a gift received and a wage earned. I think probably my favorite verse in the scriptures to present the gospel is Romans 6.23, where we read that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Think of the difference between a wage and a gift. A wage is something you receive in reciprocation, and a result of, in reward for, in payment of something you have done. Well, because all of us have sinned, therefore all of us have earned death, that spiritual death, that separation from God. Life, eternal life, is a gift. Now, if I were to offer you, or someone were to offer you a gift, and you receive the gift, and then pull out your wallet and say, here, let me pay you for it, you're going to nullify the gift. It is no longer a gift. So, if any time anyone who attempts to live up to some standard in order to pay their entry fee, so to speak, to earn their place in eternal life, they're rejecting grace. It's either a wage or it is a gift. Now, we see here clearly salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Many verses speak of that. And anyone who has not embraced Christ alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, is not truly a Christian. We also see that life itself is a gift of grace, by grace alone. Our ability to think, to work, to earn money, is by the grace of God. We have, in the church that I serve for the last 20 years, had many people who at times were unemployed. Maybe you know somebody who's unemployed. Maybe you're here this morning, you're listening to this, and you're unemployed. And we realize that our, our ability to work, as well as the job itself to earn the income, is not something we can necessarily have. Not everyone has. God does not owe us any good thing, unless if he owes us anything, perhaps judgment. The very air we breathe, the food we eat, the sun we enjoy, our ability to enjoy life. We know that one of the symptoms of COVID, for example, is the failure to be able to taste food. Now, part of me thinks that would be good because maybe I'd lose a little bit of this gut if, I, if, if tasting food didn't taste so good. I enjoy eating too much. But we realize that even the ability to taste, the ability to enjoy this beautiful music, the ability to enjoy a sunset, to, to enjoy what we can see, what we can hear, what we can taste, what we can feel, is a gift. Our ability to persevere in the faith, to say no to sin, to worship and enjoy God, are all gifts of grace. If you are listening this morning because you want to hear more, if your desire is to know God, that is not a natural desire. It's a work of grace in your heart that God has changed. I happen to really know that personally because for 18 years I was a God hater. I wanted nothing to do with God. I wanted nothing to do. And if you started to talk to me about Christ, if you had told me at that point that someday I'd be a pastor, I would have laughed in your face. God changes 
our hearts. He gives us that ability. In other words, we're so deeply indebted to God because of that grace that he's so constantly pouring out to us that we have no excuse for not extending that grace to each other. And he's given us every reason to be confident, as, we, as was mentioned earlier, as James Boyce keeps pointing back to Philippians 1.6, that God begins the work, and if he begins it, he completes it. How can we deny to others what is freely given us? So we're going to look at two things now. What does it mean to receive God's grace in vain? It means to relegate it to a past event which has little or no bearing on the present. And it means to deny the ongoing effect which God desires for it to have on our lives. So, what does it mean and what does it not mean for us as Christians to make that grace vain or empty or meaningless? First of all, grace does not mean the freedom to disobey God's commands. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so the grace may increase? By no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? You might say there's a big difference between free grace and cheap grace. Free grace is something we don't have to pay for, but has been paid for. Cheap grace means it's something we can afford because it really has little value. We understand here that as we understand the high price that was paid for that gift that God has given us, it should motivate us to love, to want to appreciate. Second thing, grace does not mean that we can take sin lightly. It's not a license to sin. It doesn't mean that there are not negative repercussions from sin. We can be forgiven from sin and still suffer from the fruit of it. Sin kills, and God loves us too much to casually accept our sin. He disciplines those whom he loves. And one of the reasons why one of the traits, characteristics, marks of a true church is the discipline of its people. The discipline of the people is not just to call them sinners, which they already are. It's not just to punish them, but it's because sin does kill. And if you really care about somebody, you're not going to allow them to go down a path which is self-destructive without doing everything you can to call them to turn from that foolishness. Now, one of the things that's important to understand here is there's a difference between punitive and corrective discipline. Punitive discipline has to do like our, our penal system to punish somebody for what they have done. There's no very little redeeming feature except perhaps to cause them to fear to have to do it again. Corrective discipline, on the other hand, is the, is the discipline, is the, the hard times designed to improve, to make better. See, we don't need to fear God punishing us for our sin. Why? Because that punishment has already been paid in full. God does not punish his children because he has already punished his son fully for all that we might deserve to be punished for. So he disciplines us correctively to make us more like Christ. Grace does not mean that we don't call sin, sin. Sin as the Bible defines it, sent Christ to the cross. 
In other words, we cannot celebrate it. There's a big difference between a hypocrite who sins and then grieves over it and one who proudly identifies with what the Bible calls sin. I have a relative who married into a homosexual marriage. I couldn't go to the wedding because I heard that the people who attend the wedding are celebrants. They're celebrating that union. I could not celebrate what God calls sin. Not that that nephew of mine, that niece of mine, that relative of mine was any more sinful than I am. Not at all. I'm not saying I'm better. I'm just saying I'm not going to celebrate the sin that you or I do. Grace does not mean that we can celebrate that we can sin lightly. So what does grace does mean on a practical basis? Well, first of all, it means that we don't have to be sin-free in order to be acceptable or accepted. The church is indeed full of hypocrites. The difference between us and those outside the church is not that we're better than them or that we somehow deserve God's blessings more, but rather that we've come to acknowledge our need of grace and forgiveness. Many of you, perhaps all of you, are familiar with the fact that many people justify their rejection of the church because the church is full of hypocrites. And I would often tell the folks that I served for the last 20 years, that's true. We are all hypocrites. At one level or another, in one form or another, we are all hypocritical. We all have that remnant of sin within us to a greater or lesser degree. The difference between those of us who are here and those of us who refuse to come is that we acknowledge our need for grace, for forgiveness. We're not here because we're better. We're here because we know that we need him to be better. We need his grace. Grace does mean that we don't stand in judgment over other people's hearts or motives. This is what we call legalism. Legalism is when I try to hold other people to some standard that I currently am striving to live to. One of the things that I've done at different times over my years is decided that I needed to get rid of sugar as part of my diet. I love sugar. I love sweets. I think I eat too many sweets. That's probably why I could stand to lose a few pounds or a little few inches around the waist. But when I'm going through these periods of having no sweets, it was easy to look at other people who are eating sweets and look at them with a certain condescending eye because they obviously were being foolish. We have a tendency to view other people from our point of strength from our viewpoint of strength. My wife is one of the most organized people that I know, and so she has a particularly difficult time when she deals with people who are disorganized, who do not keep things in opposite tracks. So that tells you a little bit about me. We cannot know the circumstances nor the motives of the heart which underlie a person's actions. And we need to be careful that we don't presume to know a person's heart, that we don't pass judgment on them. I remember reading a story once about a woman who was on a train and there was a man with three children in this train with her and the three children were misbehaving and the man seemed to be oblivious to the behavior of his children and she's just getting angrier and angrier and finally she can't restrain herself any longer and she says, sir, can't you control your children? And he seems to kind of come to, come to himself and he says, oh, oh I'm so terribly sorry, we're coming back from their mother's funeral. Ah, 
We do not know the circumstances. We don't know the backgrounds. We don't know what it is that the person has gone through that has brought them to that point. We don't know the, the sin that they struggle with. We don't know. We must be careful. Grace means that we do not stand. We refuse to stand in judgment. It means that we have that sense that if it was not for the grace of God in our own lives, we could and would go there. We are capable of the worst sin. But God has done a work in our hearts in areas that we cannot conceive of perhaps doing. Grace also means that we allow people room to grow, to struggle. We have to be careful that we don't expect people to be more than they are. We have to be careful we don't expect people to be where we are. Our personal habits of spiritual or physical disciplines, be careful that we don't communicate condemnation to others when they don't share our convictions or our habits in this area, in areas that are not explicitly stated in Scripture. Homeschooling can be one of those. Cheryl and I were in a church at one point where homeschooling was something that if you were really spiritual, you did. And if you weren't a homeschooler, you felt somehow less. You felt somehow looked down upon, condemned, because you don't, weren't homeschooling. Homeschooling is a great thing for many, from, perhaps for most. I certainly am glad that my children are no longer in the public schools with what the public schools are bringing. But we have to be careful that we don't stand in judgment over in areas that are not explicitly stated in Scripture. And acknowledging that, we surrender our rights. Americans are great for their rights. The right of privacy, the right of owning a home, the right of being respected, the right. We lay down our rights. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must what? deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life must what? Must lose it. We should be quick to accept, even to love, those that are hard to love. Because we ourselves are so accepted and loved. I used to tell my folks up there in my previous church, if there are not people in this church that you find difficult, we're probably not doing our job. Because this should be a place where people who are, do not feel accepted elsewhere feel accepted and loved. A question we need to ask ourselves sometimes in Bible teaching churches is, how would you deal with a homosexual couple who came in here holding hands? Don't they need to hear the gospel? Would we reject them? We were reading a story once about a, a very conservative, upstanding middle-class church and a man a street guy came in, in the middle of the service stinky dirty walked down the center aisle and sat down on the floor right in front of the pulpit and the people are wondering what what's what's this what's what's going to be done and one of the elders an elderly man stood up and very quietly walked up and they thought to themselves, oh, fine, he's going to take care of this. Finally, you're going to get this taken care of. And the old man painfully sits down next to the man on the floor. <laughs> That's the way it should be. I'll read you another little story that I find interesting. Baby Eric, the old man, this is written by a woman, says, we were the only family with children in the restaurant. 
And we sat Eric in a high chair and noticed everyone was quietly eating and talking. And suddenly Eric squealed with delight and said, Hi! And he pounded his baby hands on the high chair tray. And his eyes were wide with excitement and his mouth was bared in a toothless grin. He wriggled and giggled with merriment. I looked around and saw the source of his merriment. And it was a man with a tattered rag of a coat, dirty, greasy, and worn. His pants were baggy, with a zipper at half-mast, his toes poked out of would-be shoes, his shirt was dirty, his hair uncombed and unwashed. His whiskers were too short to be called a beard. His nose was so varicose it looked like a road map. We were far too far from him to smell, but I was sure that he smelled horribly. His hands waved and flapped on loose wrists. Hi there, baby! Hi, big boy! I see you, Buster, the man said to Eric. My husband and I exchanged looks. What do we do? Eric continued to laugh and answer, Hi! Hi there! Everyone in the restaurant noticed and looked at us. And then at the old man. He was creating such a nuisance with our beautiful baby. Our meal came and the man began shouting from across the room, Do you know Patty Cake? Do you know Peekaboo? Hey, look who knows Peekaboo! Nobody thought the old man was cute. He was obviously drunk. My husband and I were completely embarrassed. We ate in silence all except Eric, who was running through his repertoire from admiring the Skid Row bum, who in turn appreciated with cute comments. We finally got through the meal and headed for the door. My husband went out to pay the check and told me to meet him in the parking lot. The old man poised between me and the door. Lord, just let me out of here before he speaks to Eric, I prayed. As I drew closer to the man, I turned my back, trying to sidestep him and avoid any air he might be breathing. I did and Eric leaned over my arm, reaching with both arms in a baby's pick-me-up position. Before I could stop him, Eric had propelled himself from my arms into the old man's. Suddenly, a very old, smelly man and a very young baby's consummated their love relationship. Eric, in an act of total trust, love, and submission, his tiny head upon the man's ragged shoulder, the man, his eyes closed, I saw tears hover beneath his lashes, his aged hands full of grime, pain, and hard labor gently, so gently, cradled my baby's bottom and stroked. No two beings have ever loved so deeply for so short a time. I stood awestruck. The old man rocked and cradled Eric in his arms for a moment, and then his eyes opened and set squarely on mine, and he said in a commanding voice, you take care of this baby. Somehow I managed, I will from a throat that contained a stone. He pried Eric from his chest unwillingly, longingly, as though he were in pain. I received my baby, and the man said, God bless you, ma'am. You have given my, me my Christmas gift. I said nothing more than a muttered thanks, and with Eric in my arms, I ran from the car. My husband was wondering why I was crying and holding Eric so tightly, why I was saying, my God, my God, forgive me. I had just witnessed Christ's love, shown through the innocence of a tiny child who saw no sin, who had made no judgment, a child who saw a soul and a mother, who saw more than a suit of clothes. I was a Christian who was blind, holding a child who was not. I felt it was God asking, are you willing to share your son for a moment when he shared his for all eternity? The ragged old man unwittingly had reminded me to enter the kingdom of God, we must come as little children. Grace means 
accepting people for who they are. It doesn't mean not calling sin, sin. It doesn't mean not calling people to turn from sin. So what does this look like in practice? When does grace become empty for us? When does it become vain? When does it become meaningless? If you think that you have received Christ and are, tr and are trying to, you're hoping that he will accept you on the day of judgment, but in reality, you're trusting what you are doing, have done, or whoever will do to make you acceptable. One example of this is, you ever see at a funeral, that person was so good, certainly there in heaven. Now, granted, those who understand the gospel would recognize the error of that. But do you doubt your salvation because you continue to sin? Do you doubt whether God is at work in your life? What are you really depending upon for your assurance of salvation? Is it like James Boyce, Philippians 1, 6, that he began a good work, will bring it to completion? Or do you somehow feel that it's really up to you? We received Christ by grace, but now it's us, up to us to live. To the degree to which we're critical or condemning of others, grace has become vain. Those who are truly apply grace to themselves are painfully aware of the grace that they themselves have received and are constantly receiving for God and have no room to condemn others. When we're critical of others' failures or shortcomings, what are we saying about ourselves? As I say, when we struggle with someone else who's weak where we're strong, I was a health and phys ed major in college. I've always been fairly athletic. I come from a family that's athletic, and I can still remember as a teenager looking with condescension on other students who had little or no athletic ability as though somehow I were better because I was more athletic than they were. And when we're critical of someone else who is weak where we're strong, grace has become vain to us. It has become empty. When we find it hard to forgive others who have hurt or offended us, we're not applying grace. Matthew 18, the parable of the unforgiving servant, one who was forgiven a great debt, a debt far greater than he could hope to repay, Perhaps you know someone, perhaps you're one here this morning who's been hurt deeply by somebody and you're just feeling that how can I ever forgive this person who has so deeply hurt me, who has so deeply wounded me. If we're unable to forgive them, we are making the grace that God has given us vain, empty. We need to come back to the cross. We need to come back to what Christ has done for us. We need to come back to the amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. In fact, I've heard it said, and I've seen it played out in my own life, that the degree to which we understand and embrace the fact that we deserve hell, to that degree, we appreciate the amazing grace that is ours in Christ. As Jack Miller used to say, his two points of the gospel, cheer up, you're far worse than you even begin to understand. But cheer up, you're far more loved than you could ever hope to be. And to the degree to which we accept the first part of that gospel, the gospel itself becomes richer, fuller, more beautiful, more amazing. 
Grace becomes empty when we feel we deserve better than others, that others are getting just what they deserve. The parable of the vineyard workers in Matthew 20, where different men are hired at different times during the day and they're all paid the same, and the ones who had been hired first resented that others who didn't work as long as they did received the same. Again, my wife is an outstanding student. She would not just settle to do what was required, but if there was extra credit, she would do it. And again, I'll just detract, tell you a little bit about myself, find it easier for me to, to, to understand, but to think about somebody like my wife, who was a hard-working student, who would do not only everything that was asked of her, but extra credit, versus me, who was a slacker and a poor studier. And if the teacher were to come back and say, you know what, I'm going to give you all 100s on this test. If we feel that we are those who have worked harder and therefore deserve more, whose glory is at stake? <laughs> you see, when we take a step back, one of the, the peacemakers you may be familiar with talk about what they call the four G's of peacemaking. And the first G in the peacemaker to resolve conf everyday conflict is what they say, go higher. Keep God in the mix. How is God going to be glorified in this? What is God teaching me in this? If you've been hurt, if you're in a struggle, if you are struggling, apply the grace of God to say, okay, it's not about me. It's about the one who died for me. It's about his glory. It's about his grace. How can I glorify God in the midst of this? Granted, sometimes that means calling sin to task. But many times... It means letting go of what I might consider rightly mine. And finally, grace becomes vain to the degree to which we write others off. A man who I highly respect, a friend of mine, once told me that when people hurt him, he wants nothing to do with them. He forgives them, but he wants nothing to do with them. Now, I can understand that. It's the old thing, hurt me once or, or fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. We don't want to continually put ourselves, if somebody's proven themselves untrustworthy, it would be foolish for us to give them control of our bank account. But on the other hand, to cut them off from us, to have nothing to do with them, to write them off, when you take a step back and be thankful that God has not done the same to us. My friends, those who truly understand the grace that is theirs through the finished work of Christ freely give up their right to condemn, to be critical of anyone else. So will you ask the Holy Spirit this morning to show you those remnants of pride that are still in your heart that brings you to be so critical of others, that brings you to feel more worthy or superior to others? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you don't treat us the way we all too often treat others in our hearts, if not in our words and actions. It's easy to see and certainly less painful to see how others fail than it is for us to deal with our own shortcomings or, fa or failures. But Father, we pray that you would help us to be mindful of the areas that we have struggled, the areas that we have failed, the areas that we have fallen short, that in so doing, we might honor you and the grace that we give to others. That we might honor you by trusting what you have done and your grace for our salvation and not living up to some standard that would make us more acceptable than others or less. Be glorified, Father. 
in our hearts, in our words, in our lives. And we pray all this in the name of the one who made that grace acceptable and effective to us, even Jesus Christ. Amen.